You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 82, The Fortunes of War. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway, we left off last time in early 1805. The bulk of the French army had spent two years camped along the English Channel. This had been a period of boredom, but the army had been honed to a deadly efficiency by a strenuous regimen of training and reorganization. This force came to be known as the Grande Armée, or the Great Army. By the summer of 1805, it was finally on the march from its camps along the English Channel towards Germany, where Napoleon expected an imminent confrontation with yet another anti-French coalition. Last episode, we discussed British and Austrian diplomacy around the formation of this new coalition. British case is quite straightforward. Britain was already at war with France, but British forces had no way of striking directly at their enemy. The stridently anti-French Prime Minister William Pitt was back in power, and he dispatched diplomats all over Europe to seek out new allies, to broaden the struggle. The Austrian case was a bit more complicated. Everyone in the Austrian leadership worried about their empire's relative decline, and agreed that Something had to be done to check the growing power of France. But they were internally divided over when and how this should be done. One faction, led by the emperor's brother, Archduke Charles, believed the Habsburg military and government needed massive reforms before they could even think about taking on the French. Others believed time was on Napoleon's side, and so Austria needed to strike at the first opportunity before France grew even stronger. The loudest voice on this side of the debate was the quartermaster general of the Habsburg armies, Karl Mach von Leibrich, who had spent time in French custody during the last war, and believed he understood the French and their way of war better than anyone else. In 1804 and 5, as relations between France and Austria continued to deteriorate, and Napoleon's power continued to grow, Emperor Francis II began to tilt more and more towards General Mach and the pro-war faction. However, we kind of glossed over the third great power involved in this nascent coalition, Russia. As recently as 1801, Russia had been on the brink of war with Britain, but French actions in 1803 had changed Emperor Alexander I's thinking. After the outbreak of war with Britain, French troops invaded and occupied the Electorate of Hanover. You might recall from earlier episodes that this was a sizable chunk of territory in northern Germany, 
which, despite being part of the Holy Roman Empire, was actually ruled by King George III of Great Britain. George III had been very careful to keep Hanover neutral, even as he led Britain into war against France. But Napoleon was looking for any opportunity available to strike at the British, and he did not observe the somewhat absurd legal fiction that the same man could be at war with France in his capacity as King of Britain, and neutral in his capacity as Elector of Hanover. And so, in the spring of 1803, French troops occupied the territory. Bonaparte did much the same thing in Italy. He had agreed to give up French gains in the south of the peninsula in exchange for the British evacuation of Malta. But Britain had never held up its end of the bargain. So, when war recommenced, Bonaparte ordered his armies into southern Italy to retake those ports. In both cases, Napoleon felt totally justified. You may agree or disagree with these decisions, but there could be no question that they were a part of the war effort against Britain. But Emperor Alexander I of Russia saw these developments very differently. He had once believed that he could work with Napoleon. In fact, at the outbreak of the war between Britain and France, he had actually offered to mediate the conflict. Russia had plenty of aggressive intentions of her own, but they were mostly towards the south, in the direction of the Ottoman Empire, or east into Central Asia and towards the Pacific. Now that Russia had succeeded in gobbling up her old rival, Poland, they were basically content to expand their influence in Europe peacefully through diplomacy. Mostly, the Russians wanted to avoid being drawn into another costly European conflict, as they had in the Seven Years' War. Alexander already felt he had reason to mistrust France. Despite Napoleon's coronation, he still considered the country to be infected with the dangerous ideology of the revolution. And previous revolutionary governments certainly had a record of aggression and expansionism. The invasions of Hanover and southern Italy seemed to confirm these suspicions. For his part, Napoleon had no idea how his actions were being interpreted in St. Petersburg. He assumed the emperor was being led astray by pro-British advisers, rather than genuinely alarmed by French foreign policy. Alexander started to look for a diplomatic solution to the French problem. He reached out to the Prussians, seeking an alliance. He believed that if two great powers formed a united front to express their displeasure at French foreign policy, Napoleon would have no choice but to accept certain limitations. However, the Prussians were not interested. Hanover is right on Prussia's doorstep, but apparently King Frederick William III was unbothered and content to remain neutral. Some in the Russian court began to whisper that the martial spirit of Frederick the Great was gone, and Prussia had become a country of cowards. And so, it was only with reluctance that the Russians approached the other great power in Germany, Austria. As you might recall from past episodes, Russia and Austria had collaborated extensively in the last coalition war, but it had not gone well. Their alliance had started rocky and only gotten worse. They had trouble coordinating their forces, 
and as soon as the tides of war turned against the coalition, they immediately began squabbling amongst themselves. The mutual recriminations continued until Russia abruptly pulled out of the war. So there was no great desire on either side to work together, to put it mildly. But their shared antipathy towards France made another alliance possible. Emperor Alexander of Russia had originally hoped that the very fact of this alliance would be enough to deter Napoleon. But throughout 1804, he increasingly entertained the idea of confronting France directly with force. By early 1805, Alexander had introduced a new round of conscription and amassed an army of over 100,000 men in the western regions of his empire. Meanwhile, Bonaparte certainly did not view himself as an aggressor who needed to be deterred. From his perspective, he was merely doing what was necessary to protect France from British aggression. He still assumed that the increasingly hostile attitude of the Russians was motivated by British lies and British gold, not by Alexander's growing anxieties about French power. It was a strange situation. Napoleon had no desire to provoke the Russians, but he had certainly done so. Russia had no great desire to go to war in Europe, but now Emperor Alexander was mobilizing his armies to do exactly that. This was European geopolitics at the dawn of the 19th century. The great powers had become so strong, and their interests had extended so far beyond their borders, that they almost couldn't help but step on each other's toes. And so, as Europe entered the new year, 1805, anyone with an understanding of politics and diplomacy saw that war was on the horizon. By the summer, the Grande Armée was redeploying from the Channel to face east, towards the Russians and the Austrians. The coming war would be fought on a massive scale. Napoleon's main field army would number close to 200,000 men, more than five times larger than the Army of Italy during the First Italian Campaign. Including garrison troops and smaller armies deployed on other fronts, France would enter the conflict with over 350,000 men under arms. Russia would mobilize well over a quarter million soldiers, although they would not all be deployed against the French. The rebuilt Habsburg army numbered over 200,000. The British promised to send troops to the continent as well, and the smaller members of the alliance also mobilized their armies. When you add them all up, the coalition powers had well over half a million men at their disposal for the coming struggle. Just like in the last two wars, the French would be outnumbered, and would have to rely on the superiority of their troops and leadership, and exploit the fact that their enemies were divided. In April of 1805, the British and Russians signed the Convention of St. Petersburg, and the nascent Third Coalition was finally formally born. The stated goal of the coalition was, quote, the restoration of peace in Europe. A very high-minded sentiment, but the coalition were aiming for nothing less than the full restoration of the old pre-revolutionary order. In effect, the complete conquest of France and the sister republics. And of course, Europe had been at peace before the British declared war on France three years earlier. Hypocritical or not, the stakes would be just as high as they had been in the last two wars. 
France would fight for the survival of the revolution, whatever was left of it, and the maintenance of their sphere of influence. The coalition would fight to contain what they saw as an existential threat to European security. The leaders of the coalition believed northern Italy would be the decisive theater of the war. Napoleon had attacked Austria through Italy in both of the last two wars, and the Habsburgs believed he would do so again. They also had political reasons, which led them to believe they had to reassert their control over this region as quickly as possible. And so, in the opening phase of the war, the main effort of the coalition armies would be in Italy. Archduke Charles, probably the best Habsburg commander, would lead nearly 100,000 of the best Austrian troops in an invasion of French-controlled Italy, supported by another 20,000 men in the Austrian Alps. In Germany, a Habsburg army of over 70,000 men would start by occupying Bavaria. This was a neutral state, but the Bavarians had drifted closer to France in the last few years, as the French expanded their influence in Germany. In fact, the Bavarians had actually signed an alliance with Bonaparte. This agreement was secret, but anyone who kept a close eye on European diplomacy had guessed that it existed. On paper, the force that would invade Bavaria was led by another brother of the emperor, Archduke Ferdinand. But Ferdinand was inexperienced, so in practice, most of the responsibilities of command would fall to the quartermaster general, Karl Mach von Liebrich. General Mach had been one of the strongest voices arguing for this war. Now he would have the opportunity to play a role in its execution. Soon, the world would see if he deserved the confidence Emperor Francis II had placed in him. These 70,000 Austrians under Mach and Archduke Ferdinand were to be joined as soon as possible by 75,000 Russians, in preparation for a push west towards the Rhine and France. And so, the coalition hoped, Napoleon would be tied down, and possibly even defeated in Italy, without enough manpower to face this second thrust from Germany, aimed directly at the French heartland. But there were flaws with the Austrian plan. For starters, as we already know, Napoleon's main effort would come in Germany, not Italy. Second, the plan relied on Habsburg troops moving very quickly. General Mach wanted to place his base of operations at the fortified city of Ulm, which is closer to France than it is to Vienna. If you'd asked General Mach about this, he probably would have said, Yes, that was quite fast and very aggressive. Speed was one of the keys to France's battlefield success in the last decade, and Mach would beat them at their own game. But he didn't seem to understand that the Republican armies didn't fight this way because of some decision made by their generals, but because years of painful experience had taught them that their troops were uniquely suited to this style of warfare. There had been some reform to the Habsburg military, but it was still nothing approaching the nimble, well-organized, highly-motivated French military. Mach's plan for the southern German front would push his army to the limits of its capabilities, even before they faced the French. There was also the uncertain command structure. In theory, the emperor's brother, Archduke Ferdinand, was in command, 
but the emperor had instructed his brother and the rest of the army leadership to defer to General Mach. The man calling the shots was not the same person as the man invested with formal authority. This created the possibility of ambiguity and confusion at the very top of one of the main Habsburg armies. Finally, there was the problem of coordination between the Allies. There was no unified coalition command structure. The various armies facing Napoleon would march to war independently. The general staff had some idea of how they were supposed to coordinate their actions, but in practice, this would mostly fall to the generals in the field. The collaboration between the Russians and the Austrians during the last war had been far from harmonious, and neither side seems to have done very much to solve the problems they had encountered. So I think it's safe to say there was some discord among the coalition ranks as they mobilized their armies for war, especially the Austrians. They could have been better prepared. Their planning was haphazard, based on incorrect assumptions, and overly aggressive. In this preliminary stage, these were not necessarily fatal flaws, but they would need to iron out these problems very quickly if they hoped to stand against Bonaparte and the Grande Armée. In the French camp, it was a completely different picture. The soldiers of the Revolution had never been so well prepared for a campaign. As we discussed at length last episode, Bonaparte had spent the last three years honing his armies to a deadly efficiency. He already had a very good idea of how he wanted to approach the first phase of the campaign, and his staff officers had spent months meticulously planning every detail. His cavalry commanders had even taken secret trips to southern Germany, during which they had personally scouted the terrain Napoleon hoped to cross. The coming struggle would occur within the borders of the Holy Roman Empire, but the French would have superior knowledge of the ground. Bonaparte's plan was simple. He sent a small army to southern Italy under his old reliable comrade from the first Italian campaign, André Messena. Messena and his men would be outnumbered by Archduke Charles, but their only mission would be to hold him off, while the real action took place in southern Germany. Napoleon had correctly surmised that the Austrians would move against Bavaria as soon as possible, then push west. Bonaparte planned to trap these forces and destroy them. He would use his cavalry to fool the Habsburgs into thinking he was making a direct attack west to east from the French border. Then the main body of his forces would hook north, make a quick march around the enemy flank, and envelop the Austrians. If it worked, the Austrians would be thrown off balance and probably forced to fight the larger French army on unfavorable terms, before their Russian allies could arrive to even the odds. No one knew it yet, but General Mach's ambition to push into southern Germany as quickly as possible was playing right into Napoleon's hand. Bonaparte was setting a trap, and Mach was planning to rush headlong towards that trap. Even before the first shots were fired, the stage was set for an Austrian disaster. The Habsburgs still had plenty of time to change course, but they would need to do so quickly. The way things stood at the outbreak of hostilities, they were headed for a stunning defeat. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Despite this looming disaster, the opening phase of the war in the German theater went well for the Austrians. Archduke Ferdinand's army, under the guidance of General Mach, stormed into Bavaria. The small Bavarian army had no choice but to withdraw in the face of superior forces, and hope Napoleon arrived before they were forced into a battle. But Mach had no interest in chasing down the Bavarians. He continued west, towards Ulm, where he planned to set up a base of operations for his army, then set up a defensive line anchored on solid terrain, the famous Black Forest of southern Germany. It was ambitious to move so far so fast, especially with the 25,000 men of the Bavarian army still undefeated on his right flank. But as of yet, there were no indications that Mach and Ferdinand were leading their army into a trap. In fact, as the Habsburgs pushed west and their scouts entered the Black Forest, they began to encounter French cavalry patrols. General Mach believed this confirmed the soundness of his plan. He was encountering the advance guard of the French army, which was at the beginning of its advance into the Black Forest. But there was nothing behind this cavalry screen. Napoleon had sent them into the forest as bait, and the Austrians had swallowed it. In fact, the Grande Armée had moved much faster than the Austrians had anticipated. By the time the Habsburg army reached Ulm, French troops under Marshal Bernadotte had already begun to link up with the Bavarians to the north of the Austrian army's right flank. The weather was bitterly cold as Napoleon began his advance. The opening weeks of the campaign saw both armies lashed by sleet and snow. There was a good reason armies usually sat out the winter in this era yet another military tradition being broken by Napoleon. Nobody in Habsburg High Command suspected that over 70,000 of their best troops were already in a perilous situation, in immediate danger of being outflanked by a vastly superior enemy force. Napoleon received word from his cavalry that the Austrian forces were still marching west. He wrote to Foreign Minister Talleyrand, quote, Everything goes well here. The Austrians are in the defiles of the Black Forest. God willing, they will stay there. My only fear is that we shall scare them too much. The next fortnight will see many things happen. End quote. With the benefit of hindsight, the conduct of the Austrian military in this campaign looks incredibly foolish. As we've discussed, they did make mistakes. But it's important to remember that they were facing something more or less unprecedented in the history of warfare. 
True, they had seen in previous wars how French armies were capable of incredibly quick and surprising movements. But these had always been on a relatively small scale, a division or two, or maybe a small army of 20,000 men. Nobody but Napoleon had imagined such rapid, dramatic maneuvers with hundreds of thousands of men. And thanks to all the reorganization and training carried out on the Channel Coast, the Grande Armée was up to the task. At this stage in the campaign, General Mach's deficiencies as a commander began to show. He knew there were enemy troops to the north and east of his position. He suspected the main body of Napoleon's army was to his east, but he had not been able to confirm this. General Mach did not know what to do. While Napoleon's army marched furiously on their flanking maneuver, the Austrian camp was gripped with indecision. Mach sent a detachment of roughly 5,000 men to the northeast. It's unclear what he was hoping to achieve with this movement. Perhaps he sensed that he was losing the initiative and felt he had to do something. This Austrian formation was totally unsupported, marching out alone against an enemy of unknown size. On October 8, 1805, they blundered right into Marshal Joachim Murat's cavalry near the town of Wertingen. Accounts of this battle differ, but they all agree that the Habsburg troops were unprepared and outnumbered by more than two to one. Marshal Murat crushed them. Over 3,000 Austrian troops were killed, wounded, or captured, more than 60% of their initial force, at the cost of only around 200 French casualties. The first engagement of the war had been a complete rout. The Austrians fell back towards the town of Gunsberg, where they had a prepared defensive position to guard a strategic river crossing at the Danube. The next day, October 9th, Mach sent reinforcements towards Gunsberg, probably hoping to launch a counterattack. However, that same day, Marshal Ney ordered his 6th Corps to take the town and its valuable bridges over the Danube. A bitter fight ensued between two roughly evenly matched forces, the French on the north bank and the Austrians on the south. Both sides attempted crossings, and both took heavy casualties. However, when the dust settled at the end of the day, it was the French who had managed to secure the bridgehead on the south bank. General Mach ordered his men to retreat towards Ulm. By now, it should have been clear to Mach that something was going on to his north. Over the last two days, his troops had encountered over 10,000 French troops in this area, and he knew the 25,000-man Bavarian army had retreated roughly in this direction. However, Mach was still fixated on the idea of an attack from the west, and took no serious steps to secure his northern flank. By October 11th, French troops reached the outskirts of Munich. They had completed their march around the flank of Mach's army and severed his lines of communication back to Vienna. The Habsburg forces around Ulm were now surrounded on three sides and cut off from resupply and reinforcement. The trap was sprung. This begs the question, where were the Russians? 
General Mock had expected to hold this position temporarily, while he awaited the arrival of his allies. According to the plans drawn up at the start of the war, 38,000 Russian troops were due to arrive any day now, with another 40,000 close behind. Perhaps this is part of the reason Mach was paying such little attention to the threats to his flank and rear. He expected this area to be flooded with Russian troops at any moment. However, this takes us to yet another failure of Habsburg war planning. As they prepared for their collaboration with the Russians, it seems no one in Vienna had taken into account the fact that the Russian Empire used a different calendar than the rest of Europe. When the Russian generals assured the Habsburgs that their troops would begin arriving on the German front around October 10th, they meant October 10th on the Julian calendar, which hadn't been in use in Western Europe since the Renaissance. This wasn't a huge discrepancy, only 10 days. But, in the context of a military campaign, ten days can easily be the difference between victory and defeat. Mach was expecting Russian troops to appear on the horizon at any moment. In fact, they were nearly two weeks away, still spread out in their march columns, and nowhere near ready to face the French. If the Habsburg forces at Ulm were to escape this trap, they would have to do so alone. By October 11th, there was a French noose closing around Ulm, but it was still relatively weak. There were places where the line was held by relatively small and isolated units. There were still opportunities for the trapped Austrians to break out, but only if they acted fast. Mach finally decided to take action. To their credit, the Austrians chose a promising target to the northeast of Ulm at the town of Albeck, where the French line was held by a single division, roughly 5,000 men, mostly infantry, under General Pierre Dupont. The Russians were advancing from the northeast. If Mach and his army could punch through and evacuate in this direction, they would eventually run into their allies. Not only would they escape the trap, they would be in a pretty good position to face Napoleon on roughly equal terms. And so, on October 11th, General Dupont and his 5,000 men faced off against well over 20,000 Austrians. Amazingly, as Dupont weighed his options, he decided to attack. The Austrians had overwhelming numbers on their side. But their intelligence was not good, and they were not well deployed for a battle. Dupont knew that his men had high morale, and that the Austrians were confused, panicked, and inexperienced. Dupont believed that if he attacked aggressively, before the enemy was fully deployed, he could keep them pinned down, and prevent them from taking advantage of their superior numbers. It was a hard-fought battle. Dupont's attack had to be carried out quickly, and so the cavalry had to take the lead, only a few hundred horsemen charging thousands of infantry. The Austrians were able to form squares, the same tactic Napoleon had used so effectively against the Mamluk cavalry of Egypt. The French horsemen attacked for hours, and by the end of the battle, there were hardly any of them left. Two regimental standards were captured the first imperial eagles to fall into the hands of the enemy. But, 
this sacrifice was not in vain. This was a do-or-die engagement for the Austrians. They were surrounded, and this was a golden opportunity to escape. They might not get another one. Unfortunately for the Habsburgs, this reality had not dawned on their commander. General Mach approached this battle very cautiously. He seems to have been psychologically incapable of contemplating the possibility that his plan had failed, and he had been tricked. While his army fought desperately to break the jaws of Napoleon's trap, he was preoccupied with fantasies of salvation by some outside force. He told his officers that the British were landing an army in northern France any day now, and Napoleon would have to pull back to face them. Then he seized upon rumors of a coup d'etat in Paris. Obviously, there was nothing to either of these stories, just the typical rumors that are always tossed around during wartime. But apparently, this is what occupied General Mach's thoughts as his men fought for their lives. Looking at this situation objectively, he should have thrown everything he had into this engagement. Instead, faced with stiffer-than-expected resistance, he ordered his forces to retreat in the face of an enemy around one-quarter their size. Some sources claim General Mach was wounded in this battle. I haven't been able to confirm this, but if true it might help explain some of his dubious decision-making. General Dupont and his men had done the impossible, but they had paid dearly for it. One thousand of his five thousand men had been killed, wounded, or captured in the battle, twenty percent casualties. Amazingly, Dupont captured over six thousand Austrians. So, by the end of the day on the 11th, he had more prisoners under his command than soldiers. It was a glorious success for the Grande Armée, but it probably should have been a disaster. Dupont and his men had fought with incredible bravery, but their victory probably would have been impossible without the incompetence of their opponent. Ironically, this victory led to angry recriminations at French headquarters. Dupont's commander, Marshal Ney, was roundly criticized by other members of the French command for leaving Dupont's division so exposed. Ney was a prideful man with a hot temper, and he exploded at these criticisms. In fact, he had been well aware of this problem in the days before the battle, and had begged Marshal Joachim Murat to move some of his units towards this sector of the front to support Dupont in case of an enemy attack. But Murat had blown Ney off. Quote, I know nothing of plans except those made in the face of the enemy. End quote. Understandably, Ney had not taken kindly to being treated so cavalierly, and now that his concerns had proved justified, he told anyone who would listen that Murat was the one responsible for this near disaster. Marshal Joachim Murat was also a prideful man with a hot temper, and he took offense to Ney's behavior, even if he probably deserved it. This dispute became such a big deal that Napoleon himself had to weigh in with an official ruling. He sided with Marshal Ney and gave his old friend Murat a public reprimand. 
Murat was very proud of his close relationship with Napoleon, so this must have stung. I mentioned last episode that the Marshals would become infamous for their rivalries. Well, less than a month into the first campaign since their promotion, and we've already got our first one. Ney and Murat would work together in many campaigns in the future, but they always carried this petty little grudge with them. Still, despite the bickering of the Marshals, French headquarters was a picture of calm and harmony compared to the Austrian headquarters. By now, General Mach's subordinates were openly questioning his leadership. And who can blame them? The Habsburg army at Ulm was staring over the precipice of a total disaster, and it still had yet to fight a major battle against Napoleon. The full scope of this developing disaster was not yet clear, but anyone could see that something was afoot, and the campaign was not unfolding as Mach had planned. But Mach seemed unable to respond to this change in circumstances. He had been completely fooled, and then squandered his army's best opportunity to recover. Now he seemed paralyzed, focused on increasingly unlikely fantasies of salvation, when he should have been acting with urgency to save as many of his men as possible before the noose closed. On paper, Archduke Ferdinand was still in command of this army, and he began stepping in to fill the void left by the increasingly withdrawn Mach. This might sound like it was good for the Habsburg army, someone finally taking charge, but Ferdinand was inexperienced and unsure of himself. He didn't decisively sideline Mach and take control of the army. He just started issuing orders of his own without consulting Mach. So rather than bringing some much-needed clarity and urgency to the Austrian command, Archduke Ferdinand just muddled things even further, creating another layer of confusion and uncertainty in a headquarters already plagued by both. By now, Napoleon assumed the Austrians must be aware of what was happening to them. He believed they would throw all their forces into a desperate retreat to the east, hoping to punch through the encirclement. By now, Bonaparte was practically ignoring Ulm, and hoping to catch Mach on this retreat and destroy his army in a major battle. But he had overestimated his opponent. Instead of trying to escape, the leaders of the Habsburg army frittered away precious hours, squabbling as the French noose closed. It was at this point, with Napoleon somewhere nearby, his army facing annihilation, and his headquarters in chaos, that General Mach apparently decided the time was right to totally reorganize his forces. The Austrians were fighting against the clock as the noose grew tighter with each passing minute, but Mach spent an entire day shuffling his units around, placing regiments under new generals. At the moment when the chain of command was at its most uncertain, giving more work to his headquarters when it was already a chaotic pressure cooker. The next day, October 13th, Mach ordered his newly reorganized forces north once again, sending a corps of roughly 15,000 men under Marshal Johann Riesch 
to advance roughly into the same part of the front where he had encountered General Dupont's division two days earlier. It's unclear what exactly Mach was hoping to achieve with this maneuver. Many historians assume this was a breakout attempt, but Mach's orders to Marshal Riche are very vague and mention nothing about a breakout. Mach wrote with some grandiosity about destroying part of Napoleon's army, but provided precious little guidance as to what Riche was actually supposed to do. Clearly, Mach either still had no idea what was going on, or was unable to accept reality and had fallen into total delusion. According to his orders to Marshal Riche, he believed Napoleon was in retreat. On the night of the 13th, Riche's men camped along the banks of the Danube, and were shocked and disheartened to see thousands of campfires across the river in French-controlled territory. This was supposed to be a relatively weak segment of the French line, but it seemed that yet again, Napoleon had managed to make thousands of troops appear out of nowhere just where they were needed. In the preceding two days, Marshal Ney had moved almost all of his troops to this section of the front. Riche and his men would not be facing the weakened division of General Dupont, but an entire corps of roughly equivalent size. Clearly, there would be a battle in the morning. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At dawn on the 14th, Marshal Ney was at Napoleon's headquarters, getting personal instructions from the emperor. On his way out of Bonaparte's tent, he ran into his new nemesis, Marshal Murat, and quipped, quote, Come with me and form your plans in the face of the enemy. End quote. Murat did not respond. Ney and Napoleon had formed an audacious plan. The Austrians under Riche had good positions. They held the riverbank and the nearby town of Elkingen. The only bridge over the Danube had been destroyed the previous day. But Ney and Napoleon decided to attack even though that would mean rebuilding the bridge under enemy fire. It sounds suicidal, but the Austrians were low on artillery. Ney lined up every cannon he could find along the riverbank and blasted the Habsburg troops while his men rushed the bridge, hammers in hand, nails in their teeth, carrying any spare bit of lumber they could find. Despite the artillery barrage, it was hard going. 
The Austrians were only about 300 feet or 90 meters away, and they had cannon of their own. Marshal Ney personally supervised the reconstruction of the bridge, then led the charge over this rickety span. Whatever his faults, there was a good reason Marshal Ney was known within the French army as the bravest of the brave. Blasted by the superior French artillery, and faced with this ferocious charge, the Austrians fell back. Ney now had the initiative. He pursued the retreating Austrians towards the town of Elkingen, as he began bringing the rest of his troops across the bridge. As he prepared to assault the main Austrian position, Ney worried about the strong Austrian right flank, and so he ordered his cavalry to charge the Austrian right to keep them in check. This charge succeeded beyond anyone's expectations. The Habsburg cavalry rode out to meet the charge, and were soundly defeated. The Austrian infantry seemed to have been caught off guard by the quick defeat of their cavalry, as the French surged forward in pursuit of the retreating Austrian horsemen, the Habsburg infantry were unable to form squares. Instead, they broke and ran. The chasseurs and hussars of the French cavalry cut a bloody path through masses of panicked men, killing many and taking thousands of prisoners. By around noon, Ney was ready to begin his main attack. Five French infantry battalions formed assault columns and began their approach on the Austrian center. As soon as the French came into sight, the Austrians began panic firing, wasting ammunition, blasting away well out of musket range, as the French columns slowly, inexorably approached their position. This was a pretty poor showing by the Austrians. Not only did they totally lack fire discipline, their aim was terrible. Unlike in the French army, regular target practice was not a standard feature of Habsburg military training, and most of these men were raw recruits. Many had only fired a musket a few times in their lives. Ney took advantage of this deficiency. He brought his assault columns close and then redeployed them into line formation. Against a better trained enemy, this would have been a very risky maneuver. But on this day, the Austrians simply kept missing as the French drew up their lines right in front of the Austrian position. Then, the French unleashed a series of devastating volleys, tearing holes into the Habsburg lines. Most of the Austrian troops held bravely and continued to return fire as best they could. But in one regiment, a few soldiers couldn't bear standing in the face of this punishing fire. They turned tail and ran. Unfortunately for the Austrians, panic can be contagious on a battlefield. Soon, the whole regiment was running for the rear. Seeing their comrades running and their flanks suddenly exposed, neighboring regiments began to run too. Soon, the entire center of the Austrian line was not much more than a mob, thinking only of saving themselves. Bowing to the inevitable, Marshal Riesch ordered the remains of his corps to fall back towards Ulm. Despite the disaster they had just suffered, several Austrian units performed well in fighting retreats and rearguard actions, but 
their situation was totally hopeless. Every hour, more French troops crossed the bridge and joined in the pursuit. It was a catastrophe for the Habsburgs. Marshal Riche had left Ulm the previous day with around 15,000 men. During the battle, 4,000 had been killed or wounded, and another 3,000 captured, nearly half the corps. In the chaotic retreat from the battlefield, many men became separated from their units, or used the opportunity to desert. By the time Riche limped back to Ulm, there were only about 2,500 men left in good order. Looking at the Battle of Elkingen in detail, there were plenty of good reasons for the Austrian defeat. But, however you look at it, it was stunning that an entire corps of a professional army had utterly failed to defend such a strong position. Sources differ on the exact number of French casualties, but they were somewhere around a thousand. The Austrians had lost seven men for every French soldier killed or wounded. Marshal Ney was totally vindicated. Only a few days earlier, the other marshals had been whispering about his supposedly poor performance. Now he was the man of the hour. Napoleon was so pleased by this battle that he gave Ney a noble title, Duke of Elkingen. That same day, to the south of Ulm, French troops under Marshal Soult captured the city of Memmingen and took its garrison of over 4,000 men prisoner. This was the last major stronghold outside Ulm, still under Habsburg control. The southern approach to the city was now fully sealed off. Napoleon's noose had closed. On the morning of October 14th, the Austrian army under General Mach had been staring over the precipice of disaster. I think after the events of the 14th, we can safely say they were over the precipice. The catastrophe which had been slowly building since the beginning of the war had come to pass. Mach was now totally surrounded. His army was disorganized, and morale was low. Food supplies were still good, but after the fighting of the preceding week, ammunition and artillery shot was running low. On the 15th, Marshal Ney's men arrived on the outskirts of Ulm. They stormed the heights outside the city and began preparing artillery positions to bombard the trapped army. By now, the situation at Habsburg headquarters was explosive. Understandably, many Austrian officers were furious at General Mach. Even now, he was still entertaining his delusions that the Russians would arrive to save the day, or that Napoleon would suddenly be forced to withdraw. His officers begged him to attempt to break out, but he refused. A heated argument broke out between Mach and Archduke Ferdinand, his nominal commander. Ferdinand wanted to split up the army and try to send them through different weak points of the French lines, so that at least some of them might be able to slip through to friendly territory before the French were able to prepare a proper siege. But Mach was adamant. He would not break up the army under any circumstances nor would he gather all his forces to attempt to break out. Apparently, he had no plan other than sitting and doing nothing. Archduke Ferdinand had reached his limit. 
he stormed out of the headquarters and gathered 6,000 cavalry and left the city on his own without telling General Mach. Unfortunately for the Archduke, this move was detected almost immediately by Marshal Murat's cavalry, and they had to fight a series of desperate running battles as they tried to slip out of the encirclement. Most were killed or captured, but the Archduke himself and the remnants of this force did manage to give Napoleon the slip and link up with a division of Austrian infantry about 40 kilometers or 24 miles outside the city. However, this division was also surrounded, and they were soon forced to surrender. Back in Ulm, all the fight had gone out of the Austrians. Morale was at an all-time low, and Mach was still living in his world of delusion. However, seeing the French moving cannons onto the heights outside the city seems to have finally driven home the fact that his army was in terrible danger. Mach sent a messenger to Napoleon, asking for an eight-day ceasefire. Ostensibly, this would be to take care of the wounded and bury the dead, but in reality, Mach was hoping that this would be enough time for the Russians to arrive and save his army. Napoleon granted the ceasefire. He knew the Russians were still over a week's march away, and he had three corps prepared to face them. He knew there was no chance of the Russians reaching Ulm, so as a condition of the truce, he had General Mach agree that if no help had arrived within eight days, he would surrender. But only two days into the truce, Mach got word that Austrian garrisons to the northeast were surrendering to the French. This could only mean one thing. The Russians were nowhere close. Mach had been ignoring reality for weeks now, but for whatever reason, this was the piece of information that finally brought his delusions crashing down. He sent another messenger to Napoleon, informing him that he was prepared to surrender. Or perhaps not. According to other sources, this overture to Bonaparte was actually made by a group of rebellious staff officers who then informed Mach that he could either surrender or they would mutiny, and it was only then that Mach finally bowed to the inevitable. However it happened, on October 20th, 1805, the Austrian army at Ulm surrendered. Napoleon assembled the Grande Armée on the heights outside the city, and they watched as tens of thousands of sullen, white-jacketed troops trudged out of the city to lay down their arms at the feet of the conquering French. Bonaparte stood alone in front of a huge bonfire as he watched the Austrians file past, so close that it singed the tails of his overcoat. It must have been an imposing sight. Several thousand of Mach's troops were able to slip out of the encirclement and find their way back to Habsburg lines. Around 9,000 were killed or wounded in the fighting, and over 60,000 had been captured. The entire Habsburg war effort in the German theater had just collapsed. Not only was Mach's field army destroyed, Napoleon's advance had also captured many of his troops that he had left on garrison duty as he'd advanced through Bavaria and into southwestern Germany. The French had also taken a huge number of Austrian weapons, 
and all of Mach's supply depots. Food, equipment, and ammunition that was supposed to last a 70,000-man army for months. The campaign had lasted just 26 days. It's hard to overstate the scale of the disaster for the coalition. Over a quarter of the entire Habsburg military, and more than 10% of all the soldiers in the coalition armies, had been taken out of the game in a single stroke. After the surrender, Napoleon wrote an official bulletin to the Grande Armée, elucidating on the scale of his triumph and congratulating the men on a well-fought campaign. It concluded, quote, Never before have victories been so complete or less costly. End quote. He was right. This type of operation was more or less unheard of in the slow, deliberate style of warfare waged by previous generations of Europeans. In some ways, the Ulm campaign bears a stronger resemblance to the fast-paced, high-stakes warfare of the 20th century than to the sluggish chess-match campaigns of a few decades earlier. In fact, Napoleon's encirclement at Ulm would be the inspiration for one of the most famous military offensives of the 20th century, Germany's invasion of Belgium and France in 1914 with the notorious Schlieffen Plan. In a sense, Napoleon might have wished for a more worthy adversary. The brilliance and revolutionary nature of this campaign was somewhat overshadowed by the incompetence of General Mach. Within weeks of the surrender, Mach became the laughingstock of the continent, as the man who lost his army without fighting a battle. As we know, that's not totally accurate. There were several sharp fights during the Ulm campaign. But it is remarkable that there was not a single major engagement in which both armies concentrated most of their forces. General Mach makes a short cameo in the famous novel War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, during which he introduces himself as, quote, the unfortunate General Mach, end quote. As I hope I've demonstrated, it took a lot more than bad luck to destroy Mach's army. But the nickname has stuck. Even a lot of modern scholarly literature refers to him as the unfortunate. The surrender at Ulm sealed Mach's fate. He would go down in history as nothing more than a big-talking charlatan. In my opinion, he is probably the worst general ever to face Napoleon. Frankly, it is sometimes a challenge to write about this campaign because so many of Mach's decisions seem so illogical that it can be hard to interpret what he was actually trying to do. Usually, it's relatively straightforward to explain where some general made his mistake against Napoleon. He shouldn't have divided his forces. He should have protected his flank. He should have known that the French army was fast enough to catch up to his forces, etc. Whatever the mistake, it's usually at least clear what they thought they were doing, and you can often see the underlying logic in their decisions, even if they were clearly wrong in hindsight. But in the case of General Mach, many of his bad decisions are totally baffling. They don't only seem wrong in hindsight, they seem wrong in the moment. 
he was either too incompetent or too delusional to recognize what was going on right in front of his face. Most of the Austrians captured at Ulm were granted parole, meaning that they signed an oath swearing they would not bear arms against France or her allies for the duration of the conflict. That might sound like a joke, but parole was taken very seriously in this era. No country had the resources to keep large numbers of prisoners, and so everybody had an interest in maintaining this system. Mach signed his parole and returned to Vienna. Predictably, the mood at court had turned against him. A court-martial was convened, which found General Mach guilty of cowardice in the face of the enemy. He was stripped of his rank and all his decorations, and sentenced to prison. He was released after just two years, but his military career was over. In 1819, one of his former subordinates, the Prince von Schwarzenberg, took pity on him and reinstated his rank and honors. But Mach would never command troops or play any official role in the Habsburg military ever again. In his defense, Mach was not some cynical con man. From what we can tell, he really did genuinely believe in his own abilities and believed that the problem of facing this new breed of army built by the French really was as simple as just ordering the Habsburg army to operate in the same fashion. I think the real blame for this disaster lies with the emperor and the Habsburg leadership for allowing themselves to be seduced by a big talker promising a quick and easy solution to a very thorny problem. In General Mach, the leaders of the coalition had a scapegoat. They saw this disaster not as a triumph of Bonaparte and the Grande Armée, or a failure of their own planning and preparation, but as a single catastrophic error by an incompetent charlatan. This worked in Napoleon's favor, even after winning one of the most stunning victories of the entire era, his enemies were still underestimating him and his powerful new army. After the surrender, the Russians halted their advance and began to fall back, and the Habsburgs desperately pulled together units from other parts of their domains to build a new army. And of course, the war had not only broken out in Germany. French forces were squaring off against the coalition all over the world most notably in northern Italy and on the Atlantic. But we'll get into those engagements in a future episode. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>